so good evening. And uh, this evening we're going to explore the sixth principle of cordiality, which is noble view and emancipation. Practices in accordance with complete destruction of suffering. And I mean the complete. (laughs) We're just going to stamp it out in the course of one evening. (laughs) Not likely, but we'll play around a little bit. And I love how Gil set... um, shared the progression last night of moving from the three explorations of loving-kindness around body, speech, and mental activity into looking at uh, how we share what we have uh, without reservation. And then how we then move to a place of virtue and how this cultivation of virtue and virtue sharing how we deal with our body, speech, and mind are all ways that we are in relationship with the harmonics of community. And the sixth principle is dealing with turning our attention inward to the practice again. Um, But all of these other steps provide a certain contextualizing of experience that supports an understanding that we're in relationship. When we do sit on the cushion to practice, we're in relationship. It's actually seeding and nurturing um, a capacity of heart that radiates in the communities and the relationships that we're in. So when we sit on the cushion and you hear in our practice that it's for the benefit of all beings, It's for the benefit of all beings because we've been looking at these previous five, you know, principles. And so our practice is one of them. And this sixth principle is considered the chief principle, the highest principle. Um, Because mostly it's speaking to us having a place to practice and to look at what's happening to have a place, a place of regularity, a place of um, doing this practice so that we know for ourselves. This principle is about knowing for ourselves, cultivating riches on the inside so that it radiates out into service in the community. And the principle is talking about how we cultivate inner more personal qualities by recognizing ways that concentrate and liberation lead to harmony. So knowing for ourselves, this is a real shift from concept to direct experience. And what this particular principle introduces uh, are six, seven knowledges seven knowledges where we are, and what these knowledges are is that they invite us to ask a question when we're sitting. Ask a question and then know for ourselves what the answer is. So there's seven questions 
that we might consider in this, in this principle. That we want to ask the question, then we want to know for ourselves what the experience is. So it's a real shift into embodiment of our practice. So the very first instruction with this principle uh, is that the bhikkhus are instructed to go to a hut, to the root of a, con- of a tree, which is the same as go on a retreat, <laughs> or go to your place of regular practice where you sit. And I love that it starts with that because it, it really su- supports the need for us to create a clearing. Create, create a clearing and in our lives where we can get ourselves still. There's no substitute for practice. There's no substitute for practice. This is a verified faith tradition. That being that you know for yourself. It's not enough just to hear it. Although there's cases, I'm sure, where people have heard the word and it was, you know, all there. But... These teachings are about looking in and knowing, knowing the truth for yourself in these teachings. So go to a hut, go to a quiet place. Reestablish your virtue. Gil talked about virtue last night. and um, it's, This is a place where when you sit, you kind of, just even occupying the posture sometimes, I know for me, just being in the position supports me in remembering the precepts of non-harming, you know, non-lying, you know. And so reminding yourself of what your precepts are that you're practicing, what the one thing is that you're renouncing that we talked about the other day. You establish that in your hut. And you begin by getting your mind still. We've been looking at ways to look at the body and the breath and some ways of really stabilizing the heart and mind so that we can uh, support a certain opening and clarity when we sit in our practice. Stillness comes when we don't do anything. So we open to this to this place of the the non doing, and see what uh, what's alive for us moment to moment in this present moment. And without this sense of stability and harmony, it's it's difficult for meditation to deepen. If we're in conflict and if we're hooked by the hindrances, it's difficult for um, practice to deepen. So we wanna sit long enough to settle a little bit. So the idea here is to dwell in virtue when we go to our seat, take our seat in our practice, have a sense of steadiness and evenness so that we can continue in our practice of seeing and knowing for ourselves. So I'd like to go over these seven um, knowledges and just share a little bit about it and maybe be a little creative with some of it and, and, and invite you 
to keep in mind that these are questions that we ask. And maybe there'll be a question or two that um, kind of resonate for you, that you can begin to take to your own seat and explore. Maybe this is a question for me, but together they really support a sense of inner harmony that then supports an outer giving that the community actually needs. So the first knowledge is, the question is, am I obsessed, absorbed, or fixated in any way that would stop me from seeing things as they truly are? Am I obsessed, absorbed, or fixated in any way that would stop me from seeing things as they actually are? And so this is where we can sit and begin, and begin. This is where our mindfulness practice really serves us. So it brings to mind what Bhante Gunanatara, who's a Theravadan um, monk, lives in Virginia, beautiful teacher. Uh, this is how he defines mindfulness. This is how he describes it. He said, awareness happens just before you start thinking. A flashing split second just before you focus your eyes and your mind on the thing. Just before you objectify it, clamp down on it mentally and segregate it from the rest of existence. Just before your mind says, oh, it's a dog. Those few seconds just before you conceptualize it as a thing is mindfulness. This soft, unfocused awareness contains a very deep knowing that is lost as soon as you focus your mind and objectify the object into a dog. Once the mind perceives, mindfulness is quickly passed over. And mindfulness meditation practice teaches us to prolong those moments of awareness so that we're not just seeing dog, but we're seeing everything before and after. We're opening the lens wider. All of it is mindfulness, not just the objects of awareness. And these are the things we can begin to see when we sit on the cushion. The minute we lock in on an object, and it gets solidified, you know, and then takes us on a journey, we start the proliferation of thought there, then all of the space that surrounds the object and anything else that might arise is often not seen. So mindfulness is a practice of seeing what's arising and passing away. So this is a beautiful way to Notice, am I obsessed, absorbed, or fixated in any way that stops me from seeing things <coughs> as they are? Another way of looking at this is a Winnie the Pooh quote. And it goes like this, it says, Well, said Pooh, what I know best, and then he had to stop and think, because <laughs> although eating honey was a very good thing to do, there was that moment just before you began to eat it, which was better than when you were, <laughs> but he didn't know what it was called. 
that moment just before. That's mindfulness. So we can lock in on the honey or we can see those moments before where there's a delicious awareness of just wanting it that we can fast forward through. And Suzuki Roshi says it this way. He says, mindfulness is a practice where we allow the mind, where we don't allow the mind to be detained. We don't allow the mind to be detained. (coughs) So these are beautiful ways to work with this first question. Am I obsessed, absorbed, or fixated in any way that would stop me from seeing clearly? The second principle or knowledge is when I surrender obsession, this kind of fixation, when I surrender it, do I personally obtain serenity? When I let go of the object of fixation, do I experience the release? Do I experience the serenity that the letting go makes available? I don't know about you, but oftentimes in in our practice, we can see things that arise, but we're not always noticing when they're no longer there. And that's a place we can become uh, acquainted. There's There's an experience we have in the release of fixation that we can begin to to notice. So do we have a relationship with serenity, with cessation of experience, with the letting go? Because we really think, you know, the object is the big deal, but it's really... You know, I'm, in my practice, it's been the letting go that's more of the big deal. So that's the second question that's asked that invites inquiry. The third question is, are my views consistent with the Buddhist teachings? As I'm witnessing when I'm on the cushion, are my views consistent with the teachings? Am I noticing what's happening from the viewpoint of the teachings? And this is a useful uh, teaching or invitation here. And I'd like to just go back to the Vipalasa Sutta that I talked about the other day, where there was the dance between perception, thought, and view. And also in that sutta is a discussion of four ways we distort reality to the disadvantage of ourselves and others. And it's when we take things to be personal when they're not personal. This is where the I, me, mine fixation kicks in. And we over-identify <coughs> with that and not see that all that's arising is a series of processes, not solid identities. And when we don't get that clear, then we can really lock in tightly and over-identify with what arises. So this um, taking things personally versus non-personally. We also um, take things to be permanent when they're impermanent. And that's a source of distorted view. Um, Change, as you know, is all there is. And we have the breath that's changing all the time, the thoughts that are changing all the time these bodies changing all the time. You know, so um, I heard some, some reading that said, flowers make no promises. They offer their beauty, then they die, right? So 
the weather's like that. Everything is impermanent, but sometimes we get fixed on the object, holding on tightly with the assumption that we can hold on, that it's going to be there forever. And then the third way we, we find ourselves a bit um, distorted in view is that we want things to be perfect when they're, when they're not. So this is dukkha. We think things should be um, good, you know, that, that things should be steady, and they're not steady. Things should be pleasurable, but they're not pleasurable. And um, one thing it's, it's I think about often is however you think it will be, it will be different. And that's one way of just dealing with dukkha. Some of these things you couldn't have even dreamed them up. Can't even imagine them. And they appear. And dukkha depends. It relies on us having a relationship with the three poisons of greed, aversion, and delusion. Delusion being very much about what this sixth principle is about. And then the fourth one is we take things to be lovely when they're not lovely. We have this kind of rose-colored glass view where we can see it often in romance where the person's great. You know, the honeymoon period, however you say it. And then things change, you know. You're with the person for a while and you start seeing all these things and you wonder, well, what, what, what? You used to be so beautiful. <laughs> you know, we just, we just don't want to see those sides. You know, we look at our bodies and, you know, oh, you used to be so beautiful. What happened? You know? So we have, uh, we, we see the puppy, and the puppy's so cute as a puppy, and then it poops. You know, I mean, we just didn't quite want that part to be there. So we want things to be lovely, and we have a low tolerance for when it's not appealing to us or pretty to us. So all four of these ways work together to build this kind of cognitive system that, that distorts and actually impacts our freedom, our freedom of mind, our freedom of flow. And I have a shorthand way of looking at these. I say that we, we can get ourselves stuck when we, when we forget that life is not personal, permanent, perfect, or pretty. So the four, <laughs> the four fours. <laughs> so anyway, that's a way that um, deals with the question, are my views consistent with the Buddha's teachings? Um, dukkha, anatta, anicca, and uh, pretty. The fourth principle is, do I possess the character of a person capable of forgiving and restraint? Do I possess the character of a person capable of forgiveness and restraint. We talked about forgiveness and restraint a couple of days ago. The idea of, of if you don't forgive, you, it, it's hard to move on. It's hard to have a sense of flow. And the idea of renouncing that one thing as you sit on the, on the cushion underneath the tree in your hut, in your place of inner reflection. Where are you gripped? Where is their flow? 
and do I possess the character? What needs to be cultivated for the character? You know, the egolessness involved in letting go. Where can that be developed? Number five, do I possess the character again of a person who is dedicated to training in virtue, meditation, and wisdom? And I think Gail did a beautiful job last night of looking at these qualities of virtue and concentration and wisdom. And it's a practice. And, and the questions are intended to ask, am I in alignment? Is my life in alignment? Is my practice in alignment? Are my thoughts in alignment? Are my actions in alignment? Am I cultivating through my actions this character of a person dedicated to this practice? Number six, do I have the strength of a person who gives heart, ears, and careful attention when the Buddha teaches? Okay, this is a good question for you right now. (laughs) Are you listening? Uh, you know, the strength to hear deeply, to listen with your full body and, and mind, to take in the teachings, to examine them and know for yourself if they make sense to you. And the seventh principle is, do I have the strength of someone who is inspired and gladdened in hearing the teachings? And do I have the discipline in doing so? And with this question, um, I'm reminded of uh, uh, through my own practice, can I be an inspiration of goodness? Through my own practice and ability to um, inspire my own heart, gladden my own heart, through my own example, can, um, do I have the strength to live and embody my practice in a way that's good for all? So these are seven questions that we're invited in this sixth principle of a noble view to consider, you know, what, what it is, you know, here, here's some questions we can ask and sit with and see what comes up when we sit with these questions. What's the Vedana, you know? What's the, um, what's, where where are my tendencies when I start to explore these questions? Useful questions to help us kind of navigate or calibrate our, uh, and attune our practice with our lives. And we will often experience goodness in our practice, a lot of goodness from just uh, uh, the momentum of practice and the momentum of mindfulness, the momentum of awareness. We'll start to feel more and more from our deep listening, our sense of goodness, and notice there's probably a lot of spaces where um, we can relax and notice um, the gladness of heart and the fullness of heart that's there. I've found in my own practice that there are certain patterns or movements of mind. When I get still, one of the things I'm able to notice 
is that there can be a certain um, tracing of the patterns of mind that I see. As if you were looking at a fire and the fire is dancing. Uh, sometimes in the stillness you can notice a certain dance of mind that's occurring, a patterning. It's not the same pattern every time, but, but there's enough space to see that these uh, dust particles might just have a shape to them. I was at a concentration retreat and managed to get myself so still that one of the things I noticed was that there was a subtle tracing of the breath that mimicked the asanas in yoga practice. So I saw the downward facing dog with the inhale of the breath and the exhale. I saw the tree pose. And it was this, this interesting, um, almost like a sacred geometry, like a labyrinth of mind in those moments of deep stillness. And um, I got kind of excited about that. It, it delighted me that I could kind of, that this was kind of revealing itself. It felt very um, um, inspiring and gladdening of heart to, uh, to be soft. The feeling on the inside was a lot of softness and, and joy, mudita, and delight in, you know, the light show, if you will, of the mind at the time. So when we move from the, from the hut, from our places of practice, from our consistent practice into the world, into our communities, into our relationships, uh, what is the, what, you know, it's, it's like when we're cultivating all this goodness, wh what do we do with it? In what ways is it expressed and shared in your communities? What do you do with all the goodness you get? you know, that you're starting to bump into and know to be true. How do you share your beauty with the world is another way of looking at it. So I like to think of us uh, as practitioners, as contemplative artists, that we're all, you know, mindful, but that we're all artist in drag or artist <laughs> artist in hiding. Some of us are not so hiding. Well, some of us are out there doing our expression with art and whatever that might be. Sometimes it's it's the art of silence, but other times it's an expression that's actually a gift to to the world. And um and and I Martin Luther King says it this way. He says Human salvation lies in the hands of the creatively maladjusted. And the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? The nation and the world are in dire needs of creative extremists. I heard another teacher say, make a spectacle out of yourself with your light. So imagine that we all um, have this capacity to, um, to uh, express ourselves, to give ourselves over to a, 
maybe a creative endeavor or artistic expression that um, is an extension of practice that's in service to the world. Or maybe the world is too big, maybe just our community, just in our relationships. And I think it begins with the question, what makes your heart sing? You ever think about that question? What makes your heart sing? Rumi said that at the end of my life, with just one breath left, if you come, I'll sit up and sing. So where are you radiant? Where do you feel most alive in your own creative juices? That is the natural stewing of your practice, the spillover that serves the community. My mom passed away a year ago this past May. She made it one month short of her 90th birthday. She would have been 90 in June. And she knew she was dying. <coughs> Let me tell you a couple of things about my mother. She had eight kids. And she had, I think, 28 grandkids. She had 18 great-grandkids and nine great-great-greats. And I probably don't have that right. But <laughs> she was very proud of her tree. She is a civil rights activist and also a musician. And um, one of the ways she worked with being a musician was that she was a uh, choir director in a church, El Bethel Baptist Church in South Central Los Angeles. And all of us were in the choir, whether we liked it or not. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things she specialized in, she specialized in uh, identifying people and matching them with a gospel song that brought them to life. And she just had this knack for it. And so she would help people just come alive through singing the song. And she was just, you know, on that piano. And, you know, she was a bit harsh, but boy, you know. So at her 90th birthday party, which she threw for herself, she invited her friends, not all of her kids, but I came anyway. <laughs> and um, she cooked most of the food. She played the piano throughout. And the people who showed up, some of them in wheelchairs, some of them blind, some of them in, sh in walkers, they all came to sing the song. She helped them sing to come alive as a tribute to her. It was profound. And, um, and she died um, again one month short of being 90. But my mother used music to tenderize her heart. It was a language of affection that she knew much more than, than more interpersonal kinds of languages. I mean, she played the piano so beautifully that I used to be jealous of the black and white keys on the piano. I go, I wish I were those keys. She's just working those keys, you know. And you know how our parents can always be our apprentice in life, you know. And um, 
So she was a big teacher and also uh, a woman who uh, knew what her gifts were in this world. Uh, I remember um, being in a, in a sangha, it was a council sangha, and it was Jack Cornfield was in it and Alice Walker was in it. it the, the, the sangha was eight people of color and Jack. That's really <laughs> what it was. And we met for 10 years once a month for a half a day. And it was, uh, it was considered a wisdom circle. And I remember one time, uh, this, was, this was years ago, I was talking about my mom and how disappointed I was and, you know, and, and you know, what I didn't get and some, some things like that. It had been quite the mantra. And I remember Alice Walker leaning over to me and saying, you know, saying, oh, she, she said, your mother didn't come here just to be your mother. And there was something about that that totally snapped me out of it. She said she's a musician, she's, a, she's an activist, she's a this. She had the whole list because she had been hearing me for years, right? She said she didn't come here just to be your mother. So there's something about seeing the full of a person and also noticing what their love expression is. What is their love expression? Not the one you want them to have, but what's their that's unique and beautiful for them. And we all have, have that. So her music was her way. That was her gateway. It was an offering for good. It was a lot of goodness in it, a lot of love in it. And it was a language of love that she could verbalize. So we're all in relationship when we create something. We're all in rela relationship. Creativity brings things into existence. And creativity is always a part of a process. There's codependence or co-arising in creativity. And there's something um, that the creative process tends to blend beautifully because there's suffering and there's beauty. Right? And they kind of go together in an odd kind of way. There's beauty and the beast. There's, in the Zen teachings, 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. There's roses with their thorns. And there's the lotus flower that emerges from mud. So there's something about this co-arising um, co that's really important to take to heart and to see the creative way that it works in our own hearts. Jane Hirschfield, who's a Zen Soto practitioner and poet she, poet, she describes it this way. She says, suffering leads us to beauty the way thirst leads us to water. We make art because our lives are ungraspable, uncarryable, impossible to navigate without it. Art isn't a superficial addition to our lives. It's as necessary as oxygen. Amid the cliffs every life brings, art allows us to find a way to agree to suffering to include it and not be broken, 
to say yes to what actually is, and then to say something further, something that changes and opens the heart, the ears, the eyes, the mind. The work of art is always a conversation, not a monologue. So you see the relational and the harmonics in, in, in kind of embedded in this dance with suffering and beauty and, um, the dan- and, and that that's a creative, what can come from it is a very beautiful creative expression. So the Buddha, um, prior to his enlightenment, had a reflection of being a young child, a past life reflection of being a young boy at a festival. And um, so he recalled being at this festival as a young boy. And the image I have of them being there is that he's sitting in a tree or on somebody's shoulders and there's musicians and magic people and clowns and animals and all kinds of things that are bringing joy to to a community and um and what he said about there that is that there are some joys worth holding on to it's okay to experience this joy this recollection this kind of dance our delight it's not harming. So a lot of permission, I think, to be creative in our work, in our offerings, as, especially as lay practitioners in this tradition. Audre Lorde, who's a Caribbean-American writer, womanist, civil rights activist, she says, the sharing of joy, whether physical, emotional, psychic, or intellectual, forms a bridge for understanding what is not shared and it lessens the threat of distance. So as it relates again to the harmonics of community, the harmonizing, joyful sharing of resources without reservation, virtue is uh, a beautiful bridging of what divides us, what separates us. I remember when I was writing my book on healing rage, um, it was a real difficult birth. And, you know, in, in a lot of creative processes, you feel like you're in it alone, but you're, you're not, uh, but it feels that way. And um, I remember um, meeting her I, somewhere, I can't remember what it was. We met a couple of times, and she says, oh, why don't you come over and have tea with me? I said, okay. Angela's, uh, this is Angela Seri, and she's an anthropologist, or was. She passed away recently. Writer, elder, wise woman. And so I went and had tea with her, and, and I was sharing with her this process of writing the book, and she said, she said, it sounds like a struggle, right? And I said, yeah, oh, yeah, you know. And she says, when's the last time you danced? What? <laughs> she says, when's the last time you were in your garden? You know, what's the last song you sing? 
And, I, and she says, when you're working on something difficult, you want to bring in the beauty, bring in the lovely. And I'll never forget, you know, that just made so much sense to me. And then it brought me to another recollection that I'd had as a kid, watching my mother, who was very active in the civil rights movement, but she was also um, a jazz musician, and we had these jam sessions at our house on Friday night. And because you couldn't move the piano, which is what she played, all of the people would come to our house. So there would be the bass person coming and the saxophone and, and the women who couldn't sing, but my mother took care of that. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's get you straight. You need a little help. But they'd all kind of converge in our house, and it was jazz, improvisational jazz and the beauty of how the musicians added what was needed. That's what's involved in improvisational music. You listen deeply and add what's missing, what's, what's creative to the mix. And that's what we do in community. It's one way to serve community when you think about it. If we were to see community as art, we would be looking at the places where we can add our particular piece that harmonizes the sound. I, re I recall that being one of the most beautiful images of my childhood, watching these musicians work and trust their hearts in that way. So I remembered that recollection when, when she was telling me about how you blend suffering, because all of them were involved in the civil rights movement, and it was a really crazy time. And yet they had this music and this co-creating of harmony. And one of the things that's parallel to any creative process, or at least what I saw with my mom, is, is that the practice of the paramis, the paramis being these uh, ways of walking in the world um, where you're developing bodhicitta, uh, the heart-mind for the benefit of all beings. So you have, you know, the paramis of, uh, there was, when I saw these musicians, there was tenderness there and composure and a sense of discipline and stability. And all of that was cooking in the sound, in the gift of the sound. And in our tradition, the Bodhisattva uses every obstacle in life every obstacle that they run into as a way of cultivating the heart and mind. So the obstacles are almost welcome. The practice is to kind of embrace what life is offering as a teacher to cultivate the heart-mind for the benefit of all being. That's part of our tradition. It's a commitment to leap into the pain of the world to help alleviate it. And it's a practice of egolessness. So what will you do with this life you have? This life you've been given, with this practice you've been cooking? How do you serve the soup, the stew in your life? Consider seeing yourself as a gift to the world, 
What would, what would the gift be? It doesn't have to be elaborate. But just recognizing that you're part of something and that when we sit, it is for the benefit of all beings. And that we could be playful in that offer, creative in that offer. We can see ourselves as using our lives to give something back to the world. We've been given so much. And that this offering back to the world develops love, respect, harmony, kindness, peace, and unity, which is what the sutta has been reinforcing all week. That we can bring our special <coughs> flower and flavor to the mix without apology that's full of goodness. And it's a practice of extension beyond our own self-interest, beyond, beyond our interest of, of, of uh, our own personal liberation to see how we are serving something broader. So I'd like to leave you with uh, <coughs> the sounds of, of a rather extraordinary bodhisattva, Nina Simone, actually. Some of you may know her, the late, great Nina Simone. She, popular jazz, blues, and folk musician, um, activist. <coughs> she was born in 1933, and she died in 2003, and she was the sixth child of a preacher family raised in South Carolina. Sometimes I say, well, I moved to North Carolina so I could be close to her roots, but that's not really true. <laughs> she studied at Juilliard School of Dance, Drama, and Music, and she aspired to be a concert pianist. And, um, and there was just many obstacles and challenges, a lot of suffering in her life, including later the diagnosis of bipolar. Um, but very involved in the civil rights movement and um, ended up using her uh, artistry as a way of um, communicating her message. And um, she was someone who had a, a, a lot of brilliance and intelligence and passion and um, creativity. And I think if Nina Simone lived in my neighborhood in South Central Los Angeles when I was growing up, she and my mother would have done jam sessions together, <laughs> you know? Because they were both on the piano. They would have been Sangha siblings. <laughs> <laughs> so this piece I'd like to share with you is uh, called um, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free. And what I'd like for you to... Uh, tend to as you're watching it is to see how the gift is not um, uh, siloed into just her ability to play the piano and sing, but see how her entire presence is the transmission. It is the offer. It is the gift. And um, see if you can uh, allow yourself to stay close to your own body and breath as you Watch her offering.
You can turn that up a little bit. Uh-oh. Okay. We can leave it. It's good enough. It's not. Here it is. It's coming. There we go. So can it go up? There we go.
Thank you. That's Ms. Nina Simone um, offering her gifts. So let's just sit for a couple of minutes. finding a place to get still. Asking the questions. Listening deeply. Knowing from your direct experience. and then offering this goodness to the world. At the end of my life, with just one breath left, if you come, I'll sit up and sing. Thank you.